Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We're in Acts chapter 2 this morning. We come today to the fourth of our six commitments of the vision plan, and that is excellence in the essentials. We are, of course, referring to the essential nature of the local church. What makes the local church more than another civic club or altruistic society? The answer is found here in the second chapter of the book of Acts, beginning in verse 41. You remember that in Acts chapter 1, the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. He had instructed his followers to go to Jerusalem and there await the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they were obedient at that point, and the Holy Spirit indeed came upon them in great power. And they began to preach to the tens of thousands of travelers and pilgrims that had made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And after Peter preached, Luke records that 3,000 individuals repented of sins and were saved. So we look at verse 41. So then those who had received the word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls in one day. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, anytime I hear about mass conversions like that, I, I tend to question their genuineness. We've all seen people come forward in a moment of enthusiasm, and then they're never to be heard from again. How do we know that these folks weren't like that? How do we know that they weren't simply caught up in one moment and forgot about Jesus for the rest of their life? Well, because of verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves that is the evidence of all true conversion. A persistence in the faith, a perseverance in the faith, and the ultimate production of spiritual fruit. This was not a fit of spiritual enthusiasm. This was genuine regeneration. Now, as with all of our commitments here at First Baptist and all of our ministries, we always want to be in alignment with the Scriptures. And when we, are say, when we say we're committed to excellence in the essentials, we are referring to the essential activities of the church as laid out here in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let's just walk through them together, shall we? First, he says, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles were taught and commissioned by Jesus, and their teaching was the foundation of the church, according to Ephesians 2.20. You know that the apostle Paul used metaphors to describe the church. One of his favorites was the human body. Christ is the head. And all of us are component parts. Another one of his favorite metaphors was a building. And he says, Christ is the cornerstone of the building. In those days, they did not use a lot of lumber. They used stone and masonry work. And they would go to the quarry, and they would chisel out a perfect stone and make it completely flush and square on all sides. They would set that stone as the corner, and then every other angle of the building was plumbed and squared according to that cornerstone. And Paul says Jesus is the perfectly square and plumb cornerstone, that if we'll build our lives on Him, the building will be built correctly. And then he says the teaching of the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of the church, meaning 
that Jesus taught the apostles, the apostles taught the first century, and then every generation taught what the apostles had taught. We know that the apostles taught what Jesus taught them because of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey whatsoever I have commanded you. So the disciples taught what Jesus had taught them. So then, the doctrine that the church must teach today is the same doctrine that the apostles taught the church. We have it, fortunately, written down for us in the New Testament, don't we? And so our first commitment to the essentials is the teaching and preaching of God's Word. Now sadly, there has been a diminishment of the importance of the Word of God in many evangelical churches. The clear teaching of Scripture has been replaced by pragmatism. That is, the people don't want the clear teaching of the Word of God, and so let's give them what they want. They want to be entertained. They want to have uh, easy-to-remember lists about inane topics. This is all an attempt to make the Bible ostensibly more culturally relevant. After all, we live, many people say, in a distinct time in history with the technology and uh, transportation the way it is. How can a modern man or woman have anything in common with the people about whom was written 2,000 years ago. On top of that, there's a mixing and mingling of popular psychology with biblical truths, a toning down of the more controversial and the offensive parts of the Bible, the explaining away altogether of the hardest truths of Scripture, and the result is a powerless, toothless gospel of self-improvement that is really no gospel at all. Many of us here have been praying for revival in our land. And I asked Wednesday night to our prayer meeting, how would we know it if we saw it? We opened the Word of God together to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, which is one of my favorites. You might remember that Nehemiah was the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes I of Persia. The Persians had overthrown the Babylonians. The Babylonians had toppled Jerusalem years earlier. Men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the best and brightest, were carried away, enslaved into Babylonian captivity, along with many others. But after the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, the Persian kings looked favorably upon the Israelites and allowed some of them to go back and try to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. But Nehemiah got word that that had not happened. The walls remained down. The gates had been burned. And he asked the king if he might be permitted to take a leave of absence and go down there and lead in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And the king allowed that and paid for it. And in 52 days they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah understood that the real problem was not an architectural one. It was a problem of the heart. You see, God had warned His ancestors for decades that unless they turned from their sinful ways, He was going to send judgment and ultimately, though he's a God of mercy, he's long-suffering and slow to anger, he sent that judgment in the form of the Babylonian captivity. And the people thought their nation was lost forever. But they came back, this remnant, and rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the temple. And the first thing they did when the wall was finished is call a prayer meeting. They called the people and they met outside the water gate there on the town square. And Ezra, the priest, opened the scroll of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and he began to read. And he read from six in the morning until noon. And he stood behind the pulpit and he read. And the people wept 
because they realized they had not been obeying God's word. They had neglected it. And the sins of their ancestors were their own sins. And they repented. And dear friends, I take from that that one of the sure evidences that God is moving among us is a return to a high view of Scripture. A return to a hunger for the Word of God. And not only a hunger to hear it and to read it and to memorize it, but ultimately to obey it. I told you last week that while I was on sabbatical in Utah a few years ago, the Lord put some things on my heart. And one of the things He put on my heart is that we have a responsibility where we are geographically, so near to two large seminaries and two other Bible colleges, to bring young men in to help them get a start in ministry. And I'm so thankful that I got a start in ministry through the internship program here, and many of our staff did. At last count, we have men in 14 different states pastoring churches who came through that program. But I believe the Lord wants us to do more. And Lord willing, when we announce we're debt free in April, we're going to have more resources to train more men. And one of the things the Lord has put on my heart is to, to have a training center here for young men. And while I was in Utah, I wrote a curriculum to train young pastors, and I called it the Ezra Experience. Because Ezra said he had a clear calling from God. The good hand of the Lord was on him. And he caused him to stand up and proclaim, Thus saith the Lord. And the Lord used that faithful man to bring, around, to bring about restoration and revival in the land. And I believe the Lord can do it again. You see, having a plan and a strategy for the future doesn't mean we're going to scrap everything we've ever done before. I stand on the shoulders of 43 other pastors who came before me since 1887 and preached the gospel in this place. We're not going to scrap that. In fact, we're going to try to do it better than we've ever done it before. We are affirming some core ministries to the vision plan. One of those core ministries is the preaching and teachings of, of God's Word from this pulpit, from your Sunday school classes, through the discipleship programs we have during the week, through our counseling program. When you come to us with a problem in your marriage or a problem with one of your children or a problem at work, we're going to open the Word of God with you and say, Thus saith the Lord. Adrian Rogers, in his final public sermon, said that he believed that every problem in America could be solved if every pastor from every pulpit would declare, Thus saith the Lord. Second essential we're committed to is fellowship. Look what it says. So then, those who had received the word were baptized. That they were added about 3,000 souls. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That word fellowship there, koinonia, simply means partnership. These 3,000 people began to do life together. They no longer saw themselves as segmented and separated. I think one of the great problems of the church writ large today is that we think of ourselves in terms of an ice tray. Our lives are divided into cubicles and sections. So here's my work life. It's divided from my hobbies. It's divided from my family time, which is divided from my church experience. And never any of those mingle and meet together. Paul said to Christians in his day that Christ is our life. That is, there's not to be a clear separation that, that our life in Christ informs our work life and our entertainment life and our family life. 
These people began to understand that and, and they viewed themselves as a family and they had accountability to one another and, and that had implications in every aspect of their life. It had financial implications. If we could read on, the Bible says as each one of them had a need, it was being met by others in the church who were blessed financially. They didn't wait on the government. They didn't wait on someone else to do it. They saw a need, they met it. It has accountability implications. Right away in the first century, they had some discipline problems. A couple in the church was lying to the Holy Spirit and to the church leaders, and God disciplined that couple right away, and it brought fear without and within. There is accountability in this sort of fellowship. There, is, there are social implications. That is, they, they ate together. They had fun together, I take it. They spent lots of time together. The church wasn't a segment of life. It, it was life. And then there were no doubt worship implications. Paul says when we get together we're to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so they needed people to lead their worship. So how, how does that have anything to do 2,000 years into the future at First Baptist Church of Keller in our vision plan? Well, a lot. There are financial implications to our vision plan. We're going to have to do some things around here to, to do what the Lord wants us to do. We need to do some remodeling in the sanctuary and buy some new hymn books. And we already have purchased uh, a new sound system, which was sorely needed. New pews are needed. Updates in some of the children's areas. And so what we're proposing, you're going to see this in your lifeline this month, is a vision fund above and beyond your regular offerings that you can give to. But here's a key component of the vision fund. 10% of every dollar will go outside of our church, according to our commitment to plant and revitalize churches in other areas. We want to model generosity. When we call you to be generous, we want to model that as our church is generous to, to others. It has implications for our Sunday school. One of the reasons that we do Sunday school the way we do it is not just we want to be old-fashioned and do it the way we've always done it, is that we find this small group Sunday school model is, is the best way to make it very difficult for any member to be anonymous. And I know some of you want to be anonymous. You want to enjoy the music and, and, and hear some teaching from time to time, but you don't want to invest. You, you want to come in and leave and not really get to know anybody. Friends, that's not being a part of a church. If you're a part of the family, you've got to invest your time in yourself. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to, to join a Sunday school class. And so if you're not in a Sunday school class, when we dismiss here in a few minutes, go find one. If you can't find one, come to me, come to Jack, come to any of us. We want you there because that's where you do life together with other people. That's where when you have a prayer concern, you can share it openly and publicly. And these people are going to love you and lay hands on you and help you. If you have a need, they're going to help meet it. If your children are sick, they're going to watch your other kids so you can take them to the doctor. This is what doing life, this is what fellowship is all about. But it, it, it's, it comes at a cost of investing yourself in other people. You have a spiritual gift that they need. They have gifts that you need. This is what being a church is. But you know, of course, that the truth is that the church is not defined by its facilities or its programming. 
the church is the people of God, set aside and distinct from the world. And we are to be distinct and different from the world, which leads us to our, our third essential, which is the ordinances. The ordinances are those things that call to remembrance why we're distinct and different. Just as Passover reminded the Jewish people why they were distinct and different in world history, Jesus gave us the ordinances to remind the church why we're distinct and different. Look at verse 41. So then those who received his word were baptized. That is the simple chronology of church membership. You hear the gospel, you repent and are saved, and then you're baptized. That's what Baptists believe. Did you notice as you came in either of the entrances, north or south this morning, there was a very large sign that said, First Baptist Church. That has meaning. We believe in believer's baptism here, which means that we believe that baptism by immersion is the biblical model of a born-again believer. We do not believe that being baptized by immersion makes you a believer. We teach and believe here that you are baptized because you have put your faith and trust in Christ and out of obedience to Him and as a willingness to publicly profess Christ as Lord and Savior, you're baptized in the biblical way. There's a lot of misunderstanding about baptism today and, and like the clear teaching of the Word of God, there seems to have been a diminishment in the significance of baptism even in Baptist churches, believe it or not. Baptism in many churches no longer identifies one with the local church. It's, it's simply shopped as a cathartic experience. If you're feeling bad about yourself, come down and get baptized. That's not what baptism is all about. Baptism is a great picture of the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection pictured through the water. And then there is, of course, uh, the Lord's Supper. You'll notice here that in addition to teaching and fellowship, there was the breaking of bread. Now we think of that in terms of eating meals together, and they did, but no doubt this was what we did just a moment ago. Scripture says in Matthew 26 that when He broke the bread, He gave it to them after He had blessed it. He's speaking here of the commemoration of the Lord's Supper. Now the Bible doesn't prescribe how often we're to do that. It just says as often as you do that, do it in remembrance of Him. Every time you do it, it's to be motivated by remembering the shed blood and the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are committed as we move forward to being excellent in the way that we do the ordinances. Now why excellence? Why did I choose that word? Well, because the Bible says, whatever we do in word or deed, let us do it as unto the Lord and not unto the men. Do you agree with me that the Lord deserves our best in everything that we do? He does. And so that includes the ordinances. Now, fourthly and finally, perhaps most important, importantly to the local church is the commitment to prayer. He says to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It is all well and good to have a vision. And I believe the Lord has given us a vision here at First Baptist Keller. But if the Lord doesn't build the house, the laborers work in vain. And so the fourth essential of this church is prayer. Now from the beginning we've said that this vision team planning process was a stewardship issue and it is bathed in prayer. It began with a prayer meeting, it ended with a prayer meeting, and there were many prayer meetings in between. 
We had a team of men praying every Monday, and I met with them two weeks ago, and I said, can we keep meeting? And they all agreed that they would, and we're going to continue to pray. Now, we can always do better. I think one of the things about when, when we pray and we become more prayerful, all that does is to remind us how much more we need prayer. We had a young man here from another state a few weeks ago touring the seminary, and Lord willing, next fall he's going to come on here as a, an apprentice church planter, and he spent the weekend with us and our family, and he came to church here on Sunday, and then to the deacons meeting, to our staff meetings, and several other committee meetings throughout the day. And, and then that Monday afternoon, I took him to the airport, and, and I noticed he'd been very quiet all the way, and we got about halfway to the airport, he said, Pastor, I have to tell you something. And I said, what? And he said, I've never been in a church that prayed as much as yours. Well, I don't know that a higher compliment can be placed upon a church. But I was just thinking before he said that, we need to be more prayerful. Because the more we pray, the more we sense our need of the Savior. The more we grow in sanctification, the more we hate our sin. The more we become more like Jesus, the more we recognize how much farther we have to go. And so even as we have been committed to prayer in the past, Let's redouble those efforts. Because here's what happens. We see this throughout the Bible. When times are difficult and God's people are pressed into a corner, as they were down in Egyptian bondage, then they're real prayerful. They called out to God day and night. Have you noticed that? When you're having financial problems or your children are sick, how much your prayer life improves. But sometimes when the crisis has passed and the fever has broken, and, and a new job has been attained, it's not very long before we're less prayerful. In fact, that's why one of the, the great Psalms is, Lord, don't give me so much that I forget you, yet so little that I'm tempted to steal. But we have to stay in that sweet spot of, of, spray, of prayer where we're not dependent on ourselves, we're dependent upon the Lord. And, and in a few months when we announce that we are debt-free, the temptation is going to be, Lord, we've got it from here. Because I remember being in some finance committee meetings when we were $8 million in debt. We were prayerful. But now that uh, debt freedom is within our grasp, the temptation is going to be to say, Lord, we, we've got it now. No, we don't have it. We've never had it. And we need to be more prayerful now than we've ever been. And so I'm calling you as a church family to pray about three things in particular. Number one, pray for unity. Because anytime there's a change or a transition like we're about to go through with debt freedom, it's an opportunity for Satan to cause division. We have enjoyed for many years here a sweet spirit of fellowship and unity. And the last thing I want to see happen is that we lose that. And so join us, continue to pray for unity. Not only that unity would continue, that it would get even stronger. Secondly, pray for wisdom. As I said, this is a stewardship issue. And when the Lord blesses you with abundance, you are held accountable. To whom much is given, what? Much is required. Which means we need incredible wisdom about how to distribute those resources for the Lord's glory. James 1.5, if anyone needs wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men freely and upbraideth not. Pray for wisdom. And then thirdly, pray for the lost. Because after all, that's why we're left here anyway. We could worship and sing to the Lord a lot better in heaven. 
But he has a mission for us to take that light of the gospel into the lost and dying world. The church was birthed in an atmosphere of praying for the lost. They're in that upper room. What do you think they were doing? I think they had the lost on their heart because the, the second after the Holy Spirit descended in power, the very next thing you see them, the apostles doing is going to the streets and preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You pray for the lost, not just in general, but specifically. Ask the Lord to put a burden on your heart for your lost family member. Call them by name to the Lord. Coworker, teammate, classmate at school. Pray for unity, pray for wisdom, pray for the lost. Those are the core essentials of the church. The marching orders of the church are not cumbersome. They're not complex. What makes us distinct and different from the world, first and foremost, is that we are sinners saved by grace. And as sinners saved by grace, we do life together in fellowship. We, we remember what we were like before we were saved through the ordinances. And then we come together all the time to pray, to remind ourselves of how much we continue to need the Lord. Let's do that just now. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we bow before you, we thank you that you've brought us to this point in our church's history. I thank you for those who came before us, who sacrificed and worked hard and prayed and evangelized. And now that baton has been passed to us and we're running with it, and Father, we uh, are approaching a time in our lives where we believe you're going to enable us to do greater works than ever before. But Lord, we don't want to forget you. Help us to remain prayerful. Help us to remain humble. Father, help us to remain devoted to those things that make the church unique and distinct in the world. Because if we lose our distinctiveness, Lord, we lose our saltiness. And if we lose our saltiness, We've lost our reason for existing. And Lord, we exist to glorify Jesus. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.